All right, let me start that over. Sorry. Uh, peace to you, friends, in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name of him who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. All right, now I'll paint a scenario for you. So you're there in the grocery store. Shop right, stop and shop. That doesn't matter. Not Trader Joe's. It's too fancy. We like Trader Joe's. Uh, you just got off work. That same job that you've worked for 12 years. Not a job that you love necessarily, but you're comfortable. You're, you're happy. It pays the bills. You're walking down the aisle, and coming down towards you, you see a high school classmate. And this is someone whom Facebook has kept you well aware has advanced in, in leaps and bounds in their professional life, in their, their personal life. And you're confused to, to see her walking towards you because last you knew she had moved away for work. She sees you, recognizes you, remembers your name, stops, waves, hi, hey. You stop, you chat for a little while. Based on the brief uh, sketch of her life that you get during that quick conversation, you realize that, wow, life is going even better for you than Facebook sort of led me to believe already. And after you get the update on her life, and she mentions that she's back in town for a family wedding this weekend and just stopped at the store to grab a few things, the question comes around to you, so what are you doing these days? You think about the fact that you're still working at the same place where you were when she moved away. You're, you're still doing sort of the same thing. Nothing's really honestly changed for you since high school. And, well, what do you feel in that conversation, in that moment? Maybe to a greater extent, a lesser extent, you feel a little bit of shame. Maybe that particular scenario, right? You wouldn't maybe feel any shame there personally, but I'll bet you could come up with some scenario, some situation in your life now, right, where a lack of, call it progress, of, of forward motion, is causing you some shame. And somebody could maybe ask you the question, so, still not dating anyone? So, still trying to get that band together? So, still haven't redone the kitchen? So, still working on your degree? Still, still, still? Why do we feel shame right, in these kind of situations? Well, it's because, ultimately... What, and, and this is something that comes out of our sinful hearts. We're convinced that if we can't change things, if we can't exert our power, if we can't make things happen, we really don't even matter. Right? If we don't have power, if we don't have the ability to make things happen, we hardly even almost exist. Right? And the idea that things stay the same, that they're routine, that they don't change, we hate it. Our hearts... Reject that idea. I, in college, I, I worked in a, a group home, a home for adults with disabilities, adult men with disabilities. And it was often kind of a routine, right? Same old, wake up, get everybody ready, go out on some kind of outing. Maybe occasionally there'd be uh, an event in town that we would take them out into the community. But otherwise, it was sort of negotiate the same interpersonal dynamics of these four guys living in the house there, uh, work out things, make dinner, clean up, et cetera, et cetera. One of my coworkers during that job got reprimanded once for uh, because we had to write a report at the end of every shift, right? Just what what went on with your housemates, what went on among them in their interactions with staff, in their interactions with the community. And one of my coworkers wrote up as his report a few days in a row just the letters S S D D. Um, same stuff 
different day was what he meant by that. Only he, he didn't mean the word stuff with that second S, but same stuff, different day. That's what life often feels like, right? And it's frustrating, and it feels pointless, and it doesn't feel like there's anything going on, and what's the point? And when people feel that way, I've seen some of the most sort of self-destructive, stupid behaviors come out when people feel bored, when they feel like they're in a rut, when they feel like there's just nothing changing, nothing going on, that's when people decide that they're going to blow up their marriages. That's when people decide that they're going to break up a friendship. That's when people decide to do just stupid, foolish things because they feel bored. These things are the same. S-S-D-D. I don't want to take this sort of off into a philosophy lecture this morning, but this was uh, essentially one of Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, centerpieces of his philosophy. That, uh, if you know anything about Nietzsche, kind of nihilism is uh, generally associated with him. Not necessarily a fair assessment to say that he's just like nihilistic. Instead, Nietzsche's idea here, he said that what motivates us in life is the will to power. He was convinced that all life, right, all living things are sort of motivated by the desire to have power, to, to exert power, to exercise their will on things. And Nietzsche as he like sort of observed the world and people's lives and just everything, he figured that this was the conclusion he came to. The desire for power, right, to be able to, to change and exert your power over things, can sometimes even outweigh the will to just survive. Right? That people would, in a sense, that living things would almost rather risk their lives at times to gain more power. I don't think he's necessarily wrong about that, because how otherwise do you explain people's self-destructive behaviors when they're bored? Right? How do you explain someone who's just going to blow up a, a happy marriage because they're bored? How, how do you explain someone who's going to break up a friendship with just like stupid, cruel words? How do you explain that kind of self-destructiveness? That's because we human beings are sort of naturally dissatisfied when things are staying the same. But what Nietzsche said then was that's sort of the motivating factor of life. Like, why do plants grow? Why do people... We all want power. We want to grow. We want to have greater influence. That's what life is, Nietzsche said. I disagree with him there. Right? Not that I... I think this idea, he's, he's realizing something, but Nietzsche didn't sort of subscribe to the idea that God created this world. Right, ultimately, Nietzsche's idea was that that was initially, that's the outset condition of the world, that we just want greater and greater force and greater and greater influence, that that's anything that's alive wants that. That's where I would disagree with him. It wasn't the outset condition of the world. The outset condition of the world wasn't this will to power, it was love. God created the world to love it. To love it and to love us humans as his crowning creation. He didn't create the world to exercise power over it. But that didn't interest God. He made this world and he gave it away. He said to us, to our first parents, here, this world is yours. Fill it up. Use it. Creation wasn't a power play. right? God was content to give the world away and then seemingly all he was doing was kind of taking walks around in it and seeing what his children had gotten up to. There was no power play inherent in creation. But where this, this will to power enters in is in the first sin. In all sin, right? Eve was tempted by, what was the promise? You'll be like God. 
You'll be powerful. You'll know. You'll be able to, you're, you're going to ultimately exert power that is over God, right? You'll be able to hear his command and say, nope, I'm going to do something different. All sin, ever since, all sin is fundamentally power play against God. You think you get to tell me what to do, God? Think again. To sin is to make myself God. Right? To sin is to claim his power for myself. And unfortunately then, for us, right, what we're reminded of in the, the sameness, the monotony of life, it's repetition, it's this galling reminder that I am not God, that I am not in charge, that I don't get to sort of exert my power on this world and transform it into the way that I'd prefer it. That causes me what you would almost call like an existential shame. Right? Our, our, our natural sinful heart is gall. It, it spits at this idea that I can't shape the world as I'd like it. That I can't make myself God. That's what motivates me to engage in self-destructive behavior, right? To just blow up relationships, to, to do everything I possibly can to exert the, the, the greatest amount of power I can in this world in which I'm very small indeed. Jesus depicted that kind of irrational, self-destructive behavior in our gospel reading in this parable, right? It makes no sense, right? As a story, it's just nonsense, right? Who would say no to this invitation? Even if you don't want to go, who's going to say no to the invitation? Or maybe at least you understand the people who, right, like go off and they've got other business to attend to. He says that there's one guy who goes off to his field. There's another guy who goes off to his business. Okay, like, sure. Maybe you've turned down a wedding invitation for that reason. Have you ever... Like, gotten a wedding invitation and been so irate because of it that you went and attacked the bride and the groom? The, the, or the wedding planner, right? The event venue organizer person? Nonsense. This story makes no sense. Foolish. Well, what kind of foolishness is it when we engage unkindly with other people at our church? What, what kind of foolishness is it when we're harsh and unloving toward our spouse or our kids? What kind of foolishness is it when we do our work poorly, right? What kind of foolishness is it when we squander any of the opportunities for love that God places before us each and every day in favor of self-serving words, self-aggrandizing deeds? Yeah, but Jesus says, let the, the one without sin cast the first stone. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a, a preacher, G.K. Chesterton, British Christian preacher, and he, he spoke about this in one of his uh, books called Orthodoxy. He spoke about the idea that God exalts in repetition, exalts in the sameness of life, and that adults in particular can't stand it, that, that repetition and sameness kills us. He pointed out that God, I, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of his argument here, God created a world in which Repetition is sort of the central element. Summer changes to fall, changes to winter, changes to spring. Day turns to night, turns to day. The, the water comes down from the sky, and, the, and then the, the clouds are gone, and the sun heats up the earth, and the water goes back up into the sky, and the water comes back down from the sky. Life is repetition. The world that God created is repetitive. And somehow, though, we, especially adults, become convinced, Chesterton said, that repetition is like death. He talked about the way that children get this, that children love repetition. You push them once on a swing and they want 100 pushes. You give them a piggyback one time and they never want to walk again. 
right? That they ask for repetition and repetition and the same thing, the same book, the same movie, the same story over and over again until the adult is nearly dead because we're not strong enough for repetition. The children are and God is, Chesterton said. Sameness exhausts us. Sameness frustrates us. It bores us. And that's what leads us at times to be what the Apostle Paul calls here ashamed of the gospel. Right? Have you ever thought about that phrase that he uses in this reading here? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Of course not. Who would ever be ashamed of the gospel? It's very easy for us to become ashamed of the gospel, in fact. Because the gospel is always the same message. It's always this message that Jesus has died for your sins, that, that the weight of your sin was placed on his shoulders, that, that you have been reconciled to God, that there's nothing for you to do, there's nothing missing in the relationship between you and God, that the feast is prepared, that the table is set, come and eat, you're invited. And we find that somehow, we find that message boring. Again, we can only find that message boring because we're sinful. We're flawed. We're imperfect, right? Because otherwise, how could the message that God became flesh to live and die in our world, how could that ever stop thrilling us? Right? There's this, the hymn, I love to tell the story. Sometimes we get bored with telling the story. We don't always love to tell that story. Only our sinfulness, only our innate propensity toward boredom to convince us that that's not a message that's worth thrilling over each and every time, and instead that we should maybe look for something different. That instead of looking to the things that God tells us ought to provide our assurance of salvation, of our relationship with him, we should maybe look to something else, right? The idea that we're going to look to just this, this proclamation, this, this word message that says that you've been reconciled to God, that there's nothing that stands between you and him, that that's all that I ought to bet on? No, there's got to be something more. The idea that that here, I'm going to find some kind of objective fact promising to me something. Because, right, that's what baptism is. Baptism is not a, a you toward God thing. It's a God toward you thing. It's a promise that he's making to you. And the fact that we get bored with that promise is what people, leads people to get baptized, right, two, three, seven times. Because they're looking for something new. A, a fuller commitment on their part than there was before, right? A newer commitment, a refreshed commitment instead of recognizing this this is God pouring out cleansing waters filled with the Spirit on you, making a promise to you, coming to you for your assurance, your hope, your comfort, your peace. Instead, where do we go? We want to look at ourselves for our assurance. We get bored with this idea that that it's God's work, it's God's deeds, it's it's God's actions, right? His promise coming off the the page of the scripture off the lips of a preacher out the out of the the, the baptismal font. Those promises are what I ought to bank on. No. Why don't I look at myself for a little while? Why don't I look to see if I'm bearing good fruits that might provide me with some assurance of my salvation, right? And we can get really pious sounding about that, right? We can say, no, I, I know it's all God at work. It's all the Holy Spirit at work. Regardless, we're looking at ourselves and not at God, right? I can get as pious as I want, but ultimately if what I'm looking for for my assurance is, is 
what's the works that are coming off of my hands, whether or not I say, no, it's all God, it's all the Holy Spirit, I'm looking at me and not at God's promises. Because I'm ashamed of the sameness of the gospel. But again, here's what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. By faith from first to last, Paul says. That is to say, our salvation depends in no way on our deeds, on our works, not initially, not at the end, no, from its beginning to its end, our salvation comes through faith, which is trust in the works and promises of God rather than in myself. Uh, this past week, I was at a, a, a conference of pastors in our church network, our Wisconsin Lutheran Synod. Uh, I got to deliver the devotion that opened our second day. I spoke on this same text, and a lot of what I've said to you all, I said to them as well, because pastors and parishioners don't need radically different messages. Turns out, we all still just need the same message, the same law that exposes our sinful hearts and the same gospel that speaks about the works and promises and deeds of Christ Jesus. I ended that devotion this past Wednesday with uh, just these two thoughts. First one, I love being a Lutheran. And I will argue, I'll, I'll throw down anybody who espouses a different approach to theology, approach to scripture, because it's not scripture's approach. It's not scripture's theology. I may enjoy talking with preachers, pastors, teachers from other traditions, other backgrounds, to get a different perspective, sometimes to learn some things. But something that I, I spoke about just treasuring as I was at that conference of our traditions ministers this past week was that we've got the same centering conviction, that assurance, the, the knowledge of my right standing before God, I'm going to find it not in myself, not in my fruits, not in my deeds, not in the Spirit's work in my life, but in the objective promises of Christ Jesus handed over for my salvation. That that centering conviction is something, as much as I appreciate talking to other preachers, pastors, teachers from other denominations, I'm not going to get when I talk to them. That ultimately, we are always going to diverge on that particular point. Where ought I look for my assurance? And if that's where you're diverging, then ultimately, you've got a different gospel. So my first takeaway to those pastors in conference last week, I love being a part of this network, of this body of preachers and teachers and ministers. I love knowing that even when we disagree among ourselves, because we do, right? I, I ought not paint like all Wisconsin Synod pastors as sort of monolith. But I know one of the things you love is um, point out that we all come out pretty well formed from our seminary, that you know what you're going to get, and you do. There are things that Wisconsin Synod pastors, confessional Lutheran pastors will disagree on. It's not that. It's not the gospel. It's not that. That was the first takeaway. I love being a part of that network. My second takeaway was simply to my brothers there, don't lose that focus, right? Don't fall for the idea that there's anything else 
that's going to work for, for ministry, right? Don't fall for Nietzsche's lie that power, influence, is, is what's going to sort of motivate and give us success as individuals, as churches, as church bodies. Right? Don't, don't fall for the idea that there's anything but the gospel that's going to do it. It's the gospel alone that creates Christian churches, that sustains Christian churches, that works salvation for individual sinners, right? Anything else that we talked about quite a few other topics at conference there, church polity and governance, right? How do you sort of structure your church and run it? Yeah, important. Need to talk about it. Outreach programs. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to be doing other programs, other ministries, Bible studies, whatever it might be. None of it is going to be able to, to create a Christian church, sustain a Christian church, convert people. Only the gospel does that. Only the gospel can do that. That was my message to my brothers at this conference this past week. I don't lose that focus, and it's my message to you all as well. Don't lose focus on the gospel. Don't buy into the idea that there's something else that's going to do for you, for your congregation, for your church body, for your community, anything. Nothing is going to deliver. The gospel promises us something already fulfilled. Reconciliation with God, right standing with him. And when we talk about right the, the fruits that we want to see coming out, those are things that can only come out of a heart that has been captured by that message already that knows that it stands rightly before God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, as we heard from Paul's letter to the Galatians last week. All that can only actually come out of a heart that knows that it stands right before God because of Jesus alone. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, friends. Amen.